Good morning, everyone uh, who's in Asia, and um, good evening, and uh, in other places, uh, depending on your time. Uh, this is the second webcast of uh, ISIS Thailand, the Institute of Security and International Studies uh, of the Faculty of Political Science at Chulalongkorn University. Um, this is our second webcast. Last week, we had a um, dialogue on COVID-19, coronavirus, uh, and the ASEAN uh, regional response uh, to the extent that there has been a regional response. Um, so this, uh, this week, we are following up um, on that topic with uh, the Southeast Asia, uh, different countries in Southeast Asia and how uh, they have responded and handled uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, again, this is a, uh, doing a webcast is, is, is something that we're not used to. We are uh, coming around to it. I think we're getting more used to it. And uh, normally we would have this kind of forum, uh, public forum uh, on campus with uh, real people in real life, but everything now is virtual. So uh, thank you very much for joining this morning. Uh, we have two guests today. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about them. First, we have uh, Dr. Panitan Watanayakon. Panitan Watanayakon. He is a uh, professor at the Faculty of uh, Global Science, uh, Department of International Relations. Uh, but he also has served in different uh, government capacities over over the years, including uh, government spokesperson um, and principal advisor to the Deputy Prime Minister. Currently, he is the um, the chairman of the Advisory Committee on Security. Uh, to the Prime Minister of Thailand. Uh, he has informed me that this is a, um, a more indirect role, it's not a, uh, a formal role. Um, so he is speaking today um, mostly in an academic capacity with uh, uh, some policy affiliations working at Government House. Dr. Panitant uh, is joining us a bit late, uh, later than intended uh, this morning. He is uh, driving himself to government house uh, to a, an important meeting. So we have to kind of uh, work around his, uh, his logistics this morning. He will also be joining and then uh, leaving for the meeting and then coming back to join. So that's our first guest. Um, the second guest, I, I want to thank uh, very much uh, uh, Dr. Zachary Abuza. Uh, he is now um, in the US East Coast. This is a, <clears throat> a um, late uh, hour uh, in, the, in the East Coast, on the East Coast of the United States. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Abuzar, for joining us this morning in, in, in Bangkok. Um, Dr. Abuzar has an um, illustrious uh, uh, scholarly background, uh, policy analysis. Uh, he is a professor at the um, National War College uh, in Washington, D.C., but also uh, an adjunct a professor with Georgetown University. Uh, Dr. Abuzai, you can look him up uh, on Google. He has uh, published a wide array of articles and books on Southeast Asian politics, um, regional issues, uh, security affairs. So he is a, a very much seasoned um, a veteran, accomplished scholar of Southeast Asian studies. Um, last week, we, we had a dialogue about ASEAN as a, as a regional organization and looking at the ASEAN plus three, um, the various ASEAN-related uh, architecture, uh, and you know, we talked about how ASEAN has been the kind of the, the driver of regionalism, architecture building, 
um, in Asia, in broader Asia, uh, including the East Asia Summit, ASEAN uh, Defense Ministers Meetings Plus, uh, ASEAN Plus Three, you know, going back to APEC and so on. Uh, and we had uh, a bit of a conclusion that um, ASEAN has a lot of work uh, to do as a, as a regional organization handling COVID-19 because the coronavirus crisis can really undo and undermine a lot of the ASEAN achievements. Um, today, we, we will take a different um, uh, tack, different angle. We will still be looking at Southeast Asia, but we're, go we're going to look at uh, governance issues, governance and different uh, governments, uh, political regimes, where we're looking at different individual countries. Uh, Dr. Abuzar has been tracking very closely the, um, the infections, the uh, mortality and, um, and recoveries uh, in different Southeast Asian countries. So we will touch on two main themes. Uh, one is the, um, the, the, the individual responses from different Southeast Asian countries and governments. Uh, we have uh, something in Thailand, uh, Dr. Panitan will, will uh, magnify and amplify the Thailand uh, case, but uh, we also want to look at uh, Cambodia, Philippines, and the, the broader Southeast Asia region. Um, in addition, uh, the second main theme will be that uh, China and the United States, and, and China in the main, um, you know, we're looking at um, the kind of uh, governance and regimes um, and their effectiveness in overcoming, containing, uh, dealing with uh, COVID-19. Uh, you know, it, it might be the case that uh, some, some countries, some governments will look at China as a, as a kind of example. <clears throat> China was a first in and first out of the COVID-19 uh, ward, if you will. Uh, and uh, China has a very top-down, one-party rule, almost totalitarian, um, suppression of dissent, uh, they don't have an open uh, society as we understand it, but <clears throat> China has been uh, successful and effective in um, coming to terms, containing, stabilizing, and now reopening uh, the economy and society uh, after uh, several months of uh, lockdown and stringent measures. So we were looking at these two main themes. We also will be um, uh, taking taking questions and uh, comments. Uh, in fact, I already have a few um, from Ambassador uh, Bishnoi, uh, Ambassador Bhagwan Bishnoi uh, from India, uh, along these lines. So we'll take we'll be taking also uh, questions and comments along the way. Please uh, write them to um, post them to isisthailandgmail.com uh, or the ISIS uh, Facebook uh, Messenger and. Uh, uh, from the ISIS Thailand Facebook Messenger, I will then uh, have a look, and then we can go through the uh, the questions and comments. So we have about <clears throat> um, almost 90 minutes now, um, up to about 11 o'clock uh, Thailand time. Um, since uh, Dr. Panitan has not uh, joined yet, uh, let me proceed by by sort of uh, laying the context a little bit. Um, you know, the different responses. Uh, in, in Southeast Asia have been uh, uh, very striking in some areas and also a bit uh, muted in, in, other, in other countries. Uh, so for example, we have uh, emergency decree, some, you know, a, a measure of emergency rule in the Philippines and Thailand. And this uh, COVID-19 crisis seems to have tightened <clears throat> the authoritarian grip uh, in Southeast Asia. It certainly, uh, the COVID crisis has not led to more open uh, 
societies with uh, rights and freedoms, uh, basic rights and fundamental freedoms have been uh, um, curbed and circumscribed by, by the crisis. And the different governments have, uh, have used the crisis or have had to respond to the crisis by tightening uh, control. So on that note, uh, if I may turn to, uh, to you, uh, Zach, Dr. Abuza, um, you know, you have been uh, keeping a watch uh, very closely. Um, how would you assess some of the responses from the different uh, Southeast Asian governments? Has this been uh, used as a kind of a pretext to tighten authoritarian rule? Uh, will we see uh, a return to uh, pre-COVID uh, uh, rights and freedoms? And uh, is this region uh, Southeast Asia now uh, inexorably, uh, you know, in a kind of a clear, on a clear path towards greater um, upsurge of authoritarianism? Dr. Abuza. Thank you for having me, Ajahn Deepman. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I, I need to begin with the caveat that uh, these are my own views and do not represent the views of the National War College or the Department of Defense. Um, the response to COVID-19 in Southeast Asia and indeed around the world is very uh, dramatically. And we've seen huge disparities in the numbers of people uh, who are positive for the virus, um, even when we account for cases per 1,000 of the population to try to level the, the playing field there. And we've also seen enormous differences in the case fatality rates uh, between, you know, a, in Singapore and Brunei under 1% uh, to Indonesia, which is almost 10%. Um, we, we know that some governments have been very proactive uh, and put in place very quickly robust testing regimes, did contact tracing, they imposed strict quarantines, um, all at the short-term expense of their economies. Um, and other governments that were in complete denial, downplaying the crisis and fearing negative economic repercussions. Um, the success has nothing to do with regime type. Um, indeed, some democracies, Taiwan, South Korea, New Zealand, uh, have had some of the best response in the world, while others in the Philippines and Indonesia uh, have floundered. Likewise, we've seen some autocracies do better than others. Um, when I, I am obviously very concerned, as you said, uh, about the trend in uh, authoritarianism. Uh, this is uh, something uh, governments are often uh, around the world, and this is not a Southeast Asian thing, often use crises to amass uh, powers and, and authorities that they would otherwise not have. Um, in Thailand and the Philippines, the regimes have quickly relied on emergency powers. Um, both governments were uh, very slow to react. They had very halting responses at first. Um, even in Indonesia, we're seeing a crackdown on freedom of speech and greater authorities for the military uh, to help in this. Um, and obviously, uh, we've seen uh, a real grab for power in Cambodia. Um, no government should be blamed for a pandemic. Uh, that comes naturally. Uh, but they do deserve to be scrutinized for how they respond. And, and I think there are five interrelated things that we really need to look at uh, 
leadership. Dr. Government, can I interrupt you just for a second? Um, could you please uh, speak closer to the, the microphone? Uh, we're having a, oh, uh, sure. a bit I'm of sorry. A time. Yeah, please, thank you. Is this better? Good. All right. Um, no government should be blamed for a pandemic, but uh, we can uh, scrutinize them for how they respond to it. And I think there are five things that governments apart in their response. Leadership, government transparency, government legitimacy, intergovernmental coordination, and government planning and preparedness. And again, the governments that have fared well uh, have done well across those different metrics. And the governments that have done poorly uh, have had poor leadership, uh, a lack of government transparency, have tried to accumulate powers. Um, those are the ones uh, that, that we should really be concerned about, uh, their case rates. Okay, well, very good. Thank you very much uh, for this first round. Uh, I want to bring in, I think, uh, Dr. Panitan has, has joined us now. Um, good morning, Swadikap, uh, Dr. Panitan. Uh, thank you for joining us. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously the traffic was not too bad because you got to the government house very quickly. Um, look, uh, since you have limited time and you have to go into a meeting and then come back again, uh, let us uh, focus on your, your comments now. Um, you know, we've been talking about two main themes. Uh, the, the different responses of Southeast Asian governments uh, and, um, you know, in emergency decree, emergency rule in the Philippines, in Thailand, uh, and uh, tightened uh, authoritarian rule in the Cambodia and other countries. So on Thailand, um, there are a lot of questions, uh, Dr. Panitan, on Thailand. Uh, the emergency decree, um, where, where are we now in Thailand? We have had curfew, the emergency decree, and... Uh, what can we expect uh, in the next uh, few weeks going forward in terms of uh, resuming some of the uh, pre-COVID uh, lifestyle and activities and work and school and so on? Dr. Panitan. Um, can you hear us? Can you hear us? Okay, um, we've been looking at Thailand. Can you hear us now? When you can hear us, please let us know. Okay, um, let's continue the uh, conversation until we get a word from Dr. Panitan. Uh, the technicians, uh, please, our tech staff, uh, let me know when Dr. Panitan is connected. Uh, in the meantime, um, I will go back to uh, Dr. Abuzar, um, so do we have to be more concerned, Dr. Abuzar? I mean, the Philippines, Indonesia, what in terms of the coronavirus itself, uh, the, the spread, the outbreak, the, the infections, um, how bad is it? How much worse do you think it will be? I mean, we're not uh, doctors and, and, and medical experts, but in terms of tracking the trends, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the curve has been very upwards sloping uh, for Indonesia. And Indonesia has a, a large population, 270 million, Philippines 110 million. And uh, the numbers seem low to me. 
Is it because of the lack of uh, testing or, um, you know, we have very low numbers also uh, in uh, Myanmar, in Laos, um, in Cambodia, uh, Vietnam and Singapore. Vietnam and Singapore um, seem to have been the most vigilant and proactive in uh, facing up um, squarely to this uh, COVID-19. What, what would be your assessment of uh, how, how grave, how concerned we should be um, going forward uh, over the next few weeks with uh, large countries like Indonesia and the Philippines? Um, the growth in the Philippines and Indonesia is, from what we know, uh, still very large. Um, uh, the doubling rates in those countries is, is around seven, eight days, which is not the fastest in Southeast Asia, but they also have the lowest rates of testing in the region um, next to places like Myanmar or Laos. Um, so we really don't have a good sense of the uh, uh, actual numbers in those countries. Um, and that also skews the uh, case fatality rates in both those countries. In the Philippines, it's close to 7%. In Indonesia, it's well over 9%. Um, again, that, that's a factor of the fact that there is just insufficient testing. Um, but both those countries also have very uh, overtaxed and under-resourced public health systems. If you look at uh, doctors uh, per you know thousand people, or hospital beds, or nurses per thousand people, uh, both those countries have been under-resourced. If you look at their uh, spending on public health, a percentage of their budget, it is less than countries like Thailand or Malaysia. Uh, that have done a better job in this. Um, but we've seen really awful leadership in both of those countries, which has exacerbated the crises. Uh, the country in the Philippines, Duterte was largely in denial for, for weeks at a time. He lost a, a lot of uh, time. The borders were kept open. People were moving. Uh, he reversed himself on policies. And then once he established a quarantine, you know, simply goes out with his uh, trademark bluster that he's going to have uh, uh, people who violate quarantine shot. He's communicated poorly uh, to the public. Uh, the health minister has done a very poor job. Um, and in Indonesia, frankly, you haven't had a much better situation. The president was in denial for a long time, uh, intentionally kept concerns under wraps for fear that it would have a negative impact on the economy and tourism. Uh, the tourism industry in Indonesia is going to take about a $10 billion hit this year. So he had a lot of concerns. His public health officials were peddling absolute junk science and, and promoting herbal remedies. Uh, at a time when they really needed to be marshaling resources and starting um, quarantines. Uh, so we've had real lost opportunities. And in these pandemic situations, when you have compounding uh, exponential growth, um, each day really matters. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you know, the, the denial that you mentioned, um, it seems uh, 
common in the region. So I think that the, this, this COVID-19 crisis really caught uh, the, the region, uh, Southeast Asia, by, by, by big shock and big surprise. Um, you know, Philippines, Indonesia, um, Thailand, I mean, I think initially they just couldn't believe how bad, they, also they couldn't anticipate how bad it would be. And then it really took off uh, and then they had to backpedal and they'd been behind the curve, um, behind the messaging um, since then. So I think now Singapore has been at the forefront of it. Vietnam has been able to, I think, stay on top of the, uh, the crisis and the narrative. But the other countries, I think, have been kind of uh, behind and uh, we can see uh, flip-flops, we can see kind of uh, uh, ineffectiveness and, um, you know, mismanagement and, uh, you know, confusion. Um, but now, um, I'm just thinking moving forward, uh, in 1997, 1998, we had a devastating economic crisis in the region, but mainly Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, uh, not so much the CLMV countries, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam, and uh, to an extent, uh, Singapore, yes, uh, Brunei, very small country, you know, very limited. But this, and then back then, it kind of, you know, it, it kind of uh, recovered and, uh, and the, the region, the different governments, we moved on, different governments and societies. This COVID-19, um, I, I just wonder how bad will it get and, uh, you know, would, would it lead to um, domestic political changes in some countries? Often when you have a, a crisis situation, it um, fosters and cultivates a lot of domestic pressure for, for change. Uh, you know, I think in Thailand, we're seeing some of that. Uh, I think in the Philippines, we're seeing some of that, you know, and um, maybe elsewhere in the region as well. Do you see any governments, uh, any particular governments that uh, are in, uh, in danger or at risk of mis mishandling, mismanaging this COVID crisis to a point that they may face uh, domestic pressure for, for change, for government change? Um, before I answer that question, let me start with what you began with, that this pandemic caught governments by surprise. And I, I think we should ask the question, why? Uh, this is something that epidemiologists and virologists have been warning about for years. And it's not like Southeast Asia has no experience with this. We've gone through SARS, H1N1, uh, avian influenzas, swine flus, MERS. So this, this was in the works. Government should have known about this. Uh, this was not a black swan event. And, and by black swan, I mean low probability, high impact. This was really a pink flamingo event. It was there for everyone to see. People were warning about it. It was bright and governments uh, looked away. They did not want to make the investments in this. So, you know, that gets to the second part of the question. Since governments looked away and did not handle this well, with the exception of Singapore and um, uh, Vietnam, does that put them in some sort of political jeopardy? So let's look at a couple countries. Um, Malaysia is an interesting case. They were the country first really hard hit um, by the virus. Until this week, they had the largest number of cases. And one of the reasons they really were slow to get 
pick up on this was because of the political coup they had back in February on the new government and and which came to power through fairly questionable means. This was not a government that had a lot of trust uh, or uh, high degrees of legitimacy. And yet the government, the prime minister has largely deferred to scientific and medical expertise to guide policy. And Malaysia seems to be flattening the curve. So I, I think that's one government that actually could come out looking better from this. Um, in Indonesia and uh, the Philippines, you know, those are two democracies. And they might be flawed democracies, but they're democracies. And the government should have degrees of legitimacy. And yet they have really squandered these uh, because of their uh, incompetence, their un inability to get the different government agencies to coordinate with one another, to come up with a holistic plan that deals with movement of people, uh, gets them to think about um, an economic recovery plan, um, the public health implications. Um, and I, those governments are really going to take a real hit, whether at the polls uh, uh, in, in the short run with their surrogates, uh, or in uh, legislative elections. Um, Thailand is, is an interesting one because, you know, it's a regime with questionable legitimacy. Um, they've, uh, we've seen them flip-flop on decisions uh, from the very start. We've seen leaders uh, try to look for scapegoats uh, outside. Um, and yet the country has largely been saved by the fact that it has some of the best public health uh, in the region. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to uh, just make a mention. I mean, I want to apologize to our viewers. Uh, Dr. Panitan has had to go into a meeting at Government House, and uh, I'm not sure if he will return in time to join us for the rest of the show. Um, I hope so. So we'll, we'll give you an update uh, a bit later. Um, moving on, on on this uh, dynamics now, Dr. Abuzar, uh, you know, you, you see China. China, uh, you know, now is offering uh, medical equipment and uh, uh, protective gear and so on to uh, all kinds of countries, but certainly Southeast Asia. And China, uh, as I mentioned, first in, first out, and it seems like they've had uh, um, an effective response to it, even though it looked very draconian, very... Uh, stringent in the beginning, um, but you know it's looked upon now compared to to United States. Uh, I think uh, which is very polarized, and I think uh, the the response from the Trump administration. Every time I looked, at, you know, some people really disagree with it, and some people say it was on the right track. Um, so first, a couple of things. First, uh, how would you assess uh, the U.S. owned uh, handling and management of the COVID-19 up to this point? And, and what can we expect in an election year in the US? Um, how, how would this play into the election dynamics? Um, I have to be careful here because I am a federal employee. Um, I, I do work for the Department of Defense, but uh, that said, uh, I think the response in America has been absolutely horrible. Um, it has been utterly incompetent. We squandered well over a month. Uh, we knew what was coming down the pike. The government did not respond, uh, largely because the president 
uh, feared uh, uh, any shutting down of the economy going into elections in Ember would, would hurt him. Um, so the government was largely in denial. Um, and we have seen the results of this. Uh, let me just, you know, America has the largest number of cases in the world. It has the largest number of deaths. Um, and it's spreading rapidly. While we focus on cities like New York City uh, or, or Detroit or Atlanta, um, this is slowly spreading across rural America, which has slowly been hollowed out. Uh, uh, rural hospitals in America are under resourced, they're understaffed. Um, they are certainly not going to be able to deal with this. Um, I find it uh, just appalling that I'm, I'm back home. I'm not in Washington right now. I'm back home in a very remote uh, rural state in New England with a population of under 700,000 people. And we have 527 cases of, of COVID-19 here. Um, and this is a place where it's very easy to socially distance yourself. There are just so few people. But um, the pressure that it's been putting on our healthcare system, um, America's truly a, an example of what happens when you make decisions based on short-term political and economic calculations and not on scientific fact, uh, not on medical need. And you know what China did locking down Wuhan for, for two months was incredibly draconian, um, but it worked. And I'm really concerned that right now, um, the president of the United States is itching to reopen the economy before the uh, 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 curve has been flattened, before uh, cases uh, have gone down. Um, I think that we are setting ourselves up for a second and third wave of, of um, cases throughout the summer into the fall. Um, the reality is life cannot go back to normal until there is a vaccine, and that is you know, best case scenarios I, I read are, are December or January. So um, this, this is the new normal. Um, countries that are disciplined and focused uh, in their response and are willing to take short-term economic and political hits are going to come out ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, uh, you know, you and I both have uh, studied uh, U.S.-Southeast Asia relations, uh, and uh, we have been following the U.S.-Southeast Asia relations, written about it, studied it. Um, now, I, I think the COVID-19 crisis will be uh, deeply, significantly consequential for relations between Southeast Asia and, and the United States. Um, at the same time, it appears that the uh, relations between China and Southeast Asian governments uh, have uh, been closer, warmer, um, as opposed to relations between Southeast Asia and the United States. So do you think uh, 
I mean, this COVID-19 looks to me, uh, Dr. Abuzar, is going to uh, widen this, this gap. Um, Southeast Asian countries are uh, likely to be even closer uh, to China. China will have a, even a larger influence in, in Southeast Asia vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States, which is uh, preoccupied at home. And I don't want you to, I don't want to put you on the spot, you know, because you, you work for the government. But what you've said, I mean, I think uh, many people will share that view that the U.S. Uh, uh, does not have its house in order. And this is the election year. We look at the U.S. every time the news flows are very divided, very divisive, um, you know, a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, polarization. And uh, consequently, for U.S.-Southeast Asia relations, even though the U.S. still has a, a mighty military, uh, has a, a, a far-reaching, you know, blue water navy, has carrier groups and so on, but in this crisis, we're seeing a bit of a, a drift. We're seeing some gap, uh, a widening gap between U.S. and, and, uh, and Southeast Asia. And we're seeing China, which is nearby, is a, is a resident superpower, uh, making greater headway uh, in, in the region. Uh, you know, so would you share that assessment? Uh, it's something that I think uh, a lot of Southeast Asian governments and societies are thinking a lot about, because I think in many places in, in the region, uh, we don't want to be too dependent on China, even though China is the main uh, locomotive for growth, for tourism, uh, for development in the region. I think the U.S. role is still looked upon as a, you know, uh, a counterweight, if you will. And uh, some countries also look at uh, Japan in this mix and Australia in this mix a bit and also India. But the U.S. is really a key country. So if COVID-19 um, makes the U.S. more dysfunctional, uh, unable to, um, to fulfill, to you know, play a role as a superpower, as a counterbalance, then I think this region, Southeast Asia, will go more into China's orbit. Would, would you share that kind of uh, outlook? Yes, I, 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 I do share the pessimism. Uh, let me begin by just stating that this is the first global crisis that I can think of where the United States is not only playing, not playing a leadership role, but no country in the world is looking to the United States to play a leadership role because it it's just cannot get its house in order. Uh, we are looking very dysfunctional. Uh, right now and, and inwardly focused. Um, look, the Trump administration has their policies and, and we've seen um, them play out in Southeast Asia uh, for th three years now, um, starting with the immediate withdrawal from the TPP, which kind of kept us out of regional prosperity. We've seen an assault from the uh, administration on international organizations, uh, laws, and regimes, um, the questioning of alliances. Uh, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, we, we, we really have hurt ourselves in Southeast Asia at a time when Southeast Asian governments, and, and Thailand would certainly be one, are looking to China um, for greater political support, um, diplomatic support, um, the Philippines as well. Um, the United States has stopped promoting democracy and good governance in the region. And, you know, as I said at the start, COVID-19 response is all about governance. It's about leadership, 
government capacity, and we no longer support those efforts. We've cut back on USAID funding for the region, which includes pandemic monitoring and response. And even if you look at the one thing the Americans do very well, which is military presence in the region, you know, we've increased the number of freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea under the Trump administration, which has been very important. But if you don't take things like pandemic seriously, guess what? Um, we have four of our 11 aircraft carriers with COVID-19 on them. The two carriers deployed to the Pacific are now dockside, unable to because of COVID-19 cases. Um, and this is not something that we are have really thought about within the defense establishment. Um, you know, the the United States DOD budget is is over $700 billion, uh, not, not even including the cost of fighting wars. Um, and yet you can have two aircraft carriers, $26 billion of ship, not including the planes on them, uh, that are forced pier side uh, because of a pandemic that we cannot get our hands around. Uh, our medical officials do not have enough protective gear. Uh, we have failed in creating a, and deploying low-cost testing regimens. Um, it's It's been a disaster. Um, so I, I really would understand at this juncture, countries in Southeast Asia either waiting out the administration and waiting for the election in November or simply looking to a country like China, even though it does deserve a lot of blame for the spread of COVID-19 because of their own cover-ups and, and uh, uh, treatment of whistleblowers in the country. And yet they're coming through at a time when America is AWOL. Thank you, thank you. Um, you, you talk about the aircraft carriers, you know, the, uh, the contrast, I think, it, is a deliberate contrast. Uh, just a few days ago, we, uh, we, we, we've been seeing the news that uh, uh, the USS uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, aircraft carrier, uh, the controversy with the, uh, the captain uh, being terminated and then the, um, uh, the Navy secretary resigning. And uh, so all of this uh, has been uh, uh, observed from afar at the same time. Uh, we saw the other day that the Chinese aircraft carrier, um, the, the, the commission one, the Leoning, has been out and about, has been doing patrols, has been doing operations. So I think it's been a deliberate contrast uh, from, from China that, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, is not uh, not here, not ready, not prepared. Uh, it has it's a lot of problems. Uh, aircraft carriers can't uh, go out to sea. Uh, but the Chinese uh, aircraft carrier has been out and about. So I think this is a trend line that... Uh, we, we're seeing in, in the region, uh, the U.S. is a bit preoccupied, uh, China very much assertive. And if you look at the, you know, when I look at the, uh, the table, the, the tracker, the coronavirus tracker uh, table, you know, the, the various uh, numbers of the different countries, it looks to me like a, a league table. A league table meaning that which countries can handle this, this uh, pandemic better than others. So the numbers in the U.S. The US is top table. It's the top of the table uh, for the number of infections, uh, the death toll, and so on. 
and uh, followed closely by the European countries. Uh, and then you get to China. China's number is kind of stopped uh, a few weeks ago, more or less kind of uh, plateaued. Uh, but the numbers for infections and, and death toll for the, the US and European countries keep going up. So this is something that I think will have long-term ramifications for, um, for the US, for the West, for Europe, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, China in relations uh, with uh, Southeast Asia. I also see that, uh, you know, there's a framework called the ASEAN plus three with the China, Japan, and South Korea. This is the first uh, major kind of crisis that we see uh, China and Japan working together or certainly uh, not in enmity. Not, not opposing each other like, like the past. So the, the China-Japan relationship is also crucial for, for Southeast Asia because if they can get along, if China and Japan can, can get along, um, this would lead, I think, uh, down the road to a further uh, Asian regionalization along the ASEAN plus Southeast Asia plus Northeast Asia, essentially. Would you, would you kind of see in that way as well? Yeah, I, I think that uh, you have cooperation between China and Japan is certainly good for everyone in the, the region. No one wants to be pulled into uh, uh, choosing sides because both countries are absolutely critical for all of Southeast Asia's economic development. Um, they're both major importers of goods and, and investors. Um, but I, I think we should also back up and, and, and we should question China's numbers. Um, look, this is a totalitarian regime that engaged in a cover-up of this outbreak. Um, they deserve a lot of, of scrutiny. Um, and I'm not going to give them a, a pass on this. I do give them plaudits for very aggressive measures to counter this. And I, I think they really do have uh, something uh, to 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 uh, show the world in that, but uh, I, I'm certainly not going to give them a pass and and buy all their numbers. Um, the anecdotal evidence so far, whether it's from uh, the the number of cremations taking place in Wuhan uh, or or uh, subsequent outbreaks in other parts of the country, do suggest the numbers are, have been much higher than the government uh, wants the world to believe. But that said, they, they really have taken advantage of this situation effectively. Um, they have uh, uh, worked uh, in Southeast Asia in terms of uh, distributing protective equipment and masks, or in some cases, selling it. They're certainly propping up and supporting uh, a few critically uh, important uh, allies in the region, such as Cambodia, uh, in this, which has such nascent healthcare. Um, but remember, China also is using this opportunity to do what China does. Uh, they have worked and put inordinate amount of pressure on the World Health Organization to silence and keep out uh, Taiwan, which has done a fantastic job in this. Uh, that's a country worthy of emulation. Um, and uh, Taiwan is uh, doing a, a great job in providing uh, international aid and assistance. Um, South Korea too uh, uh, ha has really done a fantastic job. Uh, they're now providing aid and testing equipment and PPE to other countries. 
Um, these medium-sized states that are very nimble uh, have very wired, responsive governments, um, uh, high levels of legitimacy, um, and have thought through the planning and preparedness are really the countries to watch. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I would uh, I would agree with that. Um, th thanks very much. Uh, at this stage, uh, I would like to invite uh, questions and comments from our audience members and viewers. If you have uh, questions or comments, please post them uh, to the ISIS Thailand Facebook, and then we'll we'll start to uh, to feel them, and then you can you can engage with our conversation, our dialogue. I'll just take a couple of points now. Questions from Ambassador Bishnoi from India. Um, you know the. International cooperation, uh, are we seeing enough of it? Should we, should we be seeing more uh, during the COVID-19 crisis? I noticed that uh, I think the, the world uh, news has shown that President Trump has uh, just uh, stopped uh, contributing to the World Health Organization. Uh, that is very noticeable. So international cooperation, in this case, we should be seeing more um, because it takes uh, a lot of collaboration, coordination, medical expertise, equipment, um, information sharing. Uh, we're seeing some of it, but maybe maybe not enough. I'll, I'll just leave that with you, and then maybe you can discuss that a little bit. And then are we seeing more of this? Is this COVID-19 going to lead to greater decoupling, so-called decoupling between the United States and China? Um, we will see kind of the U.S. and China, in, instead of being more interdependent and enmeshed, but more apart, uh, more decoupled. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Dr. Abuzai, you know, when I talk to the Chinese colleagues, they don't call this decoupling. Uh, they call it de-Americanization. So for them, it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's taking, uh, stepping away from Americanization, which means uh, to them, essentially, same idea, uh, separating or, you know, coming apart, if you will, uh, but decoupling uh, is the is a well-known uh, description. So, would you say that uh, are we seeing not enough international cooperation? The role of the WHO uh, has been controversial. Some people criticize the uh, WHO for being too slow to declare this a pandemic. Uh, also, maybe too too accommodating to the Chinese authorities early on, and then later on. I mean, even I notice. Uh, uh, a bit of a lack of clarity on this virus itself. Uh, you know, we don't know. Uh, initially, they said that the wearing masks would not help, and no, not necessary to wear face masks. Uh, and then to, uh, later on, they said, okay, it's okay to wear face masks. I'm also still unclear about the airborne transmissions, whether this uh, COVID-19, this virus, corona, you know, the novel coronavirus can be contracted um, from the air, uh, which means that if if so, you know the social distancing uh, may not be so effective. So the WHO has come in for some criticism, and I think that the international collaboration cooperation that we've needed perhaps is a bit lacking. And this crisis seems uh, we're going to see, uh, you know, for the first time, a lot of foreigners are going going home have gone home so there are now some very interesting phenomena uh, more foreigners more nationals uh, nationalities of the different countries are staying home and uh, more than ever in our lifetime and they're abroad 
less than ever in our lifetime, meaning that, you know, in any country, there are fewer foreigners at this time. Uh, that's a very interesting phenomenon. So we're seeing that kind of uh, um, decoupling already. Uh, a lot of Americans have come back, a lot of Chinese have come back, and, and looks like we will also see different patterns of uh, productivity, production, supply chains, uh, production networks, maybe we'll move uh, closer to home. I know the Americans, uh, some American companies have done that, reshoring. Uh, this will then undermine um, the world economy, international trade, and you know, it's, it's really ominous and alarming uh, that we're seeing this kind of trend. What, what would you say to these two, um, two areas, two subject areas, uh, Dr. Abuzar, international cooperation or lack thereof, and then the, the decoupling dynamics? Uh, a lot to unpack there, a lot of questions in, in there. So let me get started. Uh, the World Health Organization was too slow uh, to uh, call it a pandemic. Um, they certainly were too accommodating to China and, and basically didn't push the Chinese hard enough and get the samples needed. Uh, the World Health Organization definitely deserves criticism. Um, there's nothing wrong with criticizing to make organizations better and more responsive in the future. Um, but the Trump administration's uh, uh, holding back of payments to the World Health Organization in the middle of a global pandemic is, is really um, incredibly counterproductive. Uh, this does not help the global economy. It doesn't help global health at all. And we have to remember that the World Health Organization does so much more than simply this immediate response of COVID-19, whether it's, it's dealing uh, with, with HIV, AIDS, uh, or uh, uh, other diseases, um, and public health, uh, eliminating smallpox or measles, uh, vaccinating children around the world. This is an absolutely critical role. And if public health around the world takes hits because of the lack of funding and lack of support from international organizations, and everyone is just a little bit sicker, fewer immunized children, that makes everyone more vulnerable to this pandemic and the future pandemics. Um, prevention is so much cheaper than the cure. So this is just a terrible decision by the Trump administration. Uh, I personally think it's he's doing it for political reasons. He needs a scapegoat. Um, he needs to distract uh, uh, the community. Uh, I hope that the U.S. Congress intervenes um, and, and continues uh, the payments. And again, the U.S. Congress has the power of the purse. So I, I'm hoping that this uh, 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 policy and decision uh, gets ignored. Um, let's get to the decoupling. Um, yeah, there's obviously a lot of concern that that you know, when you get these pandemics, like, oh my God, we, we're, we're dependent on Malaysia for gloves and, and China for uh, masks and, and this global supply chain that makes us vulnerable. Well, yes, it, it does. I mean, one thing governments could do is actually spend money and stockpile these equipments in greater degrees than they, they do um, because pandemics are gonna be a part of life going forward. They're, they're not going back. 
um, even if we get a vaccine for this one. Um, should this uh, lead to a decoupling? Well, think about it in different ways as well. The United States right now has 20 million unemployed people within two weeks. 20 million people, that's one out of 10 American workers. That's one third the population of Thailand that is now unemployed. And the American social safety net is really, really poor. You know, people are getting under, uh, you know, a couple thousand dollars a month, which in Southeast Asia might seem like a lot, but in America, it, it's very hard to raise a family on unemployment. And, and it's been made that way because Congress has largely resisted. Uh, 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 they believe that it creates moral hazard and people won't have an incentive to work if they're, they're generously paid. But think about what this does to the Chinese economy. That's less disposable income in the hands of Americans. Uh, we're out shopping less, we are purchasing less, and that has a real impact for China. So they obviously have are going to be looking for other markets and thinking more about domestic consumption. So that decoupling goes both ways. Um, we, we are very dependent on, on one another. Um, but, but China should be concerned that, that the uh, global recession, and, and it is going to be a very hard-hitting recession in America, Western Europe, and, and Southeast Asia is going to get uh, a really hard hit. As you mentioned, fewer people are traveling. Um, you know how important tourism is to all of Southeast Asia. Um, this is a major chunk of, of the economies. Um, no one is going to fare well. X down, a domestic consumption is down. Um, there are large sectors of economies in all of these countries that will never recover from this. Um, Dr. Abuza, thank you for that. I, I just have a follow-up, a quick follow-up question to what you just said about uh, the decoupling. And then maybe just a quick answer, a quick take on it uh, from you. You know, the, the decoupling, I mean, the, the whole virus uh, pandemic uh, crisis has called for greater international cooperation, collaboration, especially between US and China. Um, you know, in the ideal world, we would have a, a US-China cooperation on the, all resources, medical expertise and equipment and everything else. And this would be the most, uh, you know, the best case scenario for handling, overcoming uh, the virus pandemic together, right, together. But we're not seeing that. We're not seeing that. Now, on the, on the other end of the scale, let me ask you, what would be, this seems very remote, but suddenly it doesn't seem inconceivable. What, what is the, um, the risk now that we could see a, an open conflict between the two? Uh, suppose, let me draw our scenario. Let's say, you know, in three months, six months time down the road, uh, it has been um, uh, decided uh, that uh, China is responsible for spreading the virus and uh, somehow um, it should be uh, um, held to account for this uh, outbreak. And then the, the Chinese get very defensive about that. And then, you know, uh, this kind of tension that we've had, uh, could it lead to open conflict, let's say, in the South China Sea or elsewhere, you know, and this kind of conflict uh, is very remote. It seems uh, outlandish, but 
for the first time to me is not uh, completely inconceivable uh, because on, on the ground, in the waters, uh, in the high seas, on the high seas, we can see maybe overreaction, maybe, you know, mutual antagonism leading to a accident or could, could you see any kind of this uh, uh, conflict in a remote way at all? Um, I don't think it will come to armed conflict. Um, I, I think both states have every incentive right now to manage uh, the escalatory ladder, even, even if there was, for example, an incident at sea in the South China Sea, I think both countries really could ill afford a conflict right now. However, short of that, um, I, I see very little optimism, okay, no optimism, that U.S.-China relations are going to improve anytime soon. Um, leaders in the United States are already looking for scapegoats. And, and we've seen it uh, rhetorically, calling it the Wuhan virus or the China virus, right? Trying to paint blame on this. Um, there is a conspiracy theory that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, was asked about the other day, whether this was a Chinese bioweapon that, that accidentally leaked out from, you know, one of their top military bio labs, which is in Wuhan. Um, and even though scientists have roundly uh, disputed that and, and said, no, this is something that we have found in, in bats and uh, um, pangolins and, and, you know, it's, it's in a, a family of viruses that we know all about, naturally occurring, naturally evolving in nature. Um, people are, are globbing onto the conspiracy theories and, and not, not just them. I mean, it, political leaders themselves are, are globbing onto this. We have had senators in America actively talk about def intentionally defaulting on uh, uh, loans, uh, uh, treasury bills to China, uh, basically to make them pay uh, for spreading this disease. I mean, that would do inordinate damage to the global economy. The, and that would completely undermine the full faith and credit that people have in the United States dollar and, and our uh, 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 willingness to to uh, pay our debts. Um, and, and yet we're entering election season and a very high stakes election. So, so just, you shouldn't be surprised by, by some of the rhetoric and finger pointing and, and blame that you are going to see. And, and my guess uh, is you will see it in, in uh, campaign ads very soon. Um, and, on the Chinese side, they're, they're not angels, <laughs> right? Um, Xi Jinping has done so much in the past few years to consolidate his own power. Um, he has changed the constitution to give himself uh, unlimited terms. He has eliminated and uh, removed political rivals. Um, this is as one man authoritarian rule that we've seen since Mao. And, you know, so when things do not go well in China, you can't pass the buck when, when you've 
can it's so much power in, in in the hands of one person and so he has every reason to uh, um uh, deal with political dissent and people questioning him and appearing strong and resolved too because um this was costly to china there are a lot of people in china who are very angry at the chinese government's cover-up of this um that it got so bad so quickly um and and so there are political motivations within china uh for for um not compromising and not uh, uh, uh cooperating with the united states especially as the united states uh, go uh, continues this anti-Chinese rhetoric. Yeah, thank you, thank you. We have a number of uh, questions, including uh, from the UK Ambassador Brian Davison. Um, but let me first take a, a question from from Willie Tam in in Malaysia. Um, Willie Tam asks, "What what is the what are the prospects now, um, Dr. Abuza? Are we looking at?" Uh, you know, Philippines and Indonesia, they, they are big question marks, uh, whether the infections can really spread and it could get a lot worse. Um, and then in contrast to uh, Singapore, Malaysia, which uh, countries that have handled the COVID crisis much better. Um, so COVID is going to lead from the public health crisis to an economic crisis. Uh, there'll be, you know, economic contractions in uh, in a range of countries, certainly across the region, Southeast Asia. And then t with the economic crisis, we could also see uh, political tension, uh, confrontation, uh, you know, so this is a multi-layered crisis, really, uh, starting from the, the, the COVID-19. Um, do you see this, you know, in, in the region uh, spreading around, like we see in public health, crisis, uh, the, the, the outbreak spreading around the region, and then would the economic crisis uh, be, be regionalized? Will we see something like 1997, 1998? That's the first issue. Uh, um, and then a second, uh, this question comes from Gwen Robinson, who is a uh, senior fellow with ISIS Thailand. She's talking about lockdown in the US, and I think you addressed this already, whether this would be lifted too soon or not. Uh, but there's also a related issue I want to raise about the, the balance um, between uh, lockdown about, uh, you know, the stringent measures um, and uh, economic well-being. I mean, we want to be uh, safe, but we also want to survive, um, you know, not just safe from the virus, but also survive economically in terms of income and job losses and so on. So where do we draw that, that line? Uh, in, in my own view, um, first on the... Uh, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, we, this, these are big question marks to me. Uh, large populations, uh, you know, not very strong uh, healthcare systems and uh, low testing and so on. And uh, I'm not sure this, this could really uh, spread in, in those countries. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a need for uh, assistance, for a lot of information sharing and a lot of vigilance to, to, to make sure that uh, uh, the situation, the COVID situation in Philippines and Indonesia uh, do not spiral to, uh, out of control uh, because this could uh, be consequential for, for the entire Southeast Asia region. Uh, and then I think the economic crisis um, would be pretty deep and sharp. Uh, you know, the different uh, recovery curves, uh, they're looking at VW, uh, maybe L, maybe U, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, 
sharp downturn, prolong a bit, and then eventual recovery. It might take two, three, four years before we uh, reach the pre-COVID uh, pre-COVID GDP and you know, the economic uh, conditions prior to the COVID crisis. So that's something that I think Southeast Asia really would have to grapple with uh, going forward. On the lockdown, uh, U.S. lockdown, I think, uh, you know, I'll leave it to you, but um, it's, these are tough choices for governments, I mean, isn't it? For any government, you know, we're seeing some, some uh, relaxation or loosening uh, in Europe, Denmark, uh, Germany even, opening, reopening small businesses, some schools, Denmark, uh, Sweden has been, uh, the outlier has been um, astounding because Sweden is not really shut down or locked down. It has remained uh, somewhat open and it's basically has uh, lived with the, with the virus, with the coronavirus and trying to keep the healthcare system up, uh, keep the numbers down and trying to kind of uh, uh, go over time and, and, and uh, re-emerge and, and overcome this way. And it looks like it's working for now. Uh, in Southeast Asia, the, the lockdown in Thailand, I can say, you know, there's a big debate about people. You also have to remember, I think in the same, probably the same in any country, uh, you know, you have a few weeks of lockdown, curfews in Thailand included. First, um, you know, after a few weeks, the, the government, government measures on social distancing and uh, heightened hygiene and, uh, and you know, these curfews and, uh, and forced uh, separation of people and so on. It has worked to a degree. Numbers have come down and seem to be plateaued. So now there's a, people also get sick and tired of being inside. You know, and they don't get to go out. They don't get to see their friends and relatives. So people are also uh, sick and tired of that. And also people need income. A lot of people with salaries, they, they, they are okay, more secure, but people who live from paycheck to paycheck, a lot of people in Thailand are in the informal economy. Same with uh, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, you know, Myanmar, Cambodia, a lot of people don't have uh, salaries, you know, payroll, and they're not on payroll. So these people, they also want to have their jobs back. They want to get back to work. The government uh, uh, relief programs have been very mixed. Singapore, is, I think, has been proactive. Uh, Thailand has been a lot of controversy about, you know, this 5,000 baht a month. Uh, they've got this, some people ha have not been successful in applying for it, even though they deserve it. So, um, I mean, overall, the lockdown balance with economic well-being uh, is fiercely debated. Uh, you know, what, what's your view on that? Uh, first, on the the regional regionalization, Southeast Asia looking at the um, public health, economic crisis, political tension, and then what do we do? Where do we draw the line between lockdown and resumption uh, to get jobs and to get the economy going again? Uh. I'm the last person to be talking about economics. Um, I, I, I think we have to expect that this pandemic is going to lead to a global recession and, and one that's going to hit Southeast Asia very hard, whether uh, it's hits in the uh, tourism sector, uh, the banking sector, you know, uh, banks are, are taking hits right now because they're expecting with, with so much unemployment around the world, the number of credit card and loan defaults, uh, uh, corporations going uh, bankrupt right now, unable to pay back their, their, their 
uh, commercial paper or other uh, uh, debt obligations. Um, so I, I think around the region, you know, every country uh, is going to be largely hit, though we might see some countries. I think Vietnam is going to come out very well. They've done very well with the U.S.-China trade war in the past and their proactive response um, and low levels of, of COVID-19 is probably going to be good for them. Uh, we might see some real and in, uh, good investments in, in uh, the manufacturing of medical equipment and PPE uh, stuff in Southeast Asia. So I, I, in some sectors, we're going to see uh, some, some recovery, but, but overall, um, you know, we're, we're really going to, to see Southeast Asia uh, take a real hit from um, the American recession. Um, and, and some people are talking, you know, with, with 20 million unemployed people and we've got still several months of this this crisis ahead of us. Uh, America is not out of the woods right now. Even if a number of states are starting to flatten the curve. Um, and, and if the American uh, uh, economy continues to uh, go down, um, that is going to really impact Southeast Asia. So that gets to the second question and, and, and or part of the question that's, you know, the cost on all of these societies for, you know, people that cannot afford to do what you and I can do, work from home. And we, we, we're, we're very lucky in this. Um, we have the incomes to, to uh, stock up on food and, and, and pay our bills and pay our rents or, or mortgages. Um, but for people that live paycheck to paycheck, um, I think this pandemic has really exposed um, glaring inequality in societies. And I, I think we really have to understand that um, unless we start to put in place policies that benefit all of society, um, we're not going to come out of the, these pandemics. We're only as strong as the weakest link. And, and again, look at someplace like Singapore. They had the most perfect response uh, in terms of testing and proactive leadership and good communications and shutting down the economy and shutting down to international travel, and yet not paying attention to guest workers. And you get what, 700 cases in a single day today they're kind of racing through the most marginalized sectors of society. Um, all governments really need to think long and hard about social safety nets uh, so that, that when these things happen, uh, we can shut country, uh, the countries down for, for those critical two-week periods. Um, longer than two weeks is going to be very hard for many countries, and, and again, I'm watching parts of America already uh, uh, kind of rejecting the, the, the orders from, from governors and starting to reopen. And, um, you know, there's some regions uh, uh, and some places in, in Southeast Asia where, where people are much more willing to 
obey the government because they have trust in the government's policies. The government has communicated very effectively the crisis, the way out of the crisis. People know that there is a holistic plan that looks not just at public health, but, but at how are we going to stimulate the economy and, and get things back? How do we gradually and safely reopen? Um, and governments that have legitimacy. And, and those governments are able to kind of do things in a more gradual basis. The public has more trust in the government to, to pull them out of these crises. But you get governments like the Philippines and Indonesia that have been so chaotic um, the governments are panicked because they don't have any social safety nets in place. Uh, their healthcare systems are overtaxed. That's going to be a, a real problem for the region. And you know, as, as long as some countries are have raging epidemics, it, it too many people are still crossing borders. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I'll just make a, a related observation. You know, the 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 rescue packages. Uh, of the different governments have been just astonishing, have been massive, massive. Uh, the US, I know, I, I read uh, $2.2 trillion. And, and another interesting phenomenon, there's been no opposition to it. This is, this is a non-partisan kind of uh, rescue packages across the different countries. Thailand has come up with 1.9 trillion baht uh, rescue package, which is equivalent to 11% uh, of GDP. Singapore, um, uh, reportedly has come up with a, a package of, you know, 12% of GDP. So this is something that, uh, uh, you know, we have not seen for, for a long time or in some countries unprecedented that such a massive uh, stimulus rec uh, rescue packages have come out, have been enacted. Um, I also would see that in the U.S., uh, when they had a 2008-2009 crisis, this was uh, deep and devastating. Um, and the bailout was uh, also massive. But, you know, to have two massive bailouts um, within 12 years uh, apart, I mean, for the U.S., this is very costly. Uh, so this could, um, this could shine a light or elucidate um, China's role and edge. Uh, at this time, a bit more, Dr. Abuza, I would just make that observation because the U.S. has been... Uh, uh, weakened, I think, uh, fiscally by the GFC in 2008-2009 and now the, uh, the COVID-19 in 2020. Uh, well, China, I think, has a bit more fiscal space. Uh, you know, no, no, no economy is going to come out of this uh, looking pretty. Uh, I think the, uh, you know, no, no one's going to come out with, with flying colors, but I think uh, those who suffer the least and have come out, have, have returned um, uh, earliest, uh, will have an advantage. Um, let me now take a question from uh, Ambassador Brian Davison of the UK. Um, you know, what would you say, um, Dr. Abuza, about the different approaches? Can we say, if you look at the the, the tracker table of coronavirus, uh, top of the table, as I mentioned, is the United States. China is actually way down. Thailand number, was number 50 uh, yesterday when I counted, uh, among you know over 100 countries that have been uh, uh, affected by by COVID-19. Um, if you look at Northeast Asia, uh, China, South Korea, Japan, uh, their numbers are very manageable. You look at the the U.S. and Europe, the U.S. and EU, 
the numbers are just astonishing, um, very alarming. Um, so would this change uh, the question from uh, Ambassador uh, Brian Davison is that uh, would this prompt a broader shift in the mindset uh, among Southeast Asian countries? Northeast Asia examples, um, US EU numbers. Um, and then another qu uh, issue with the, the consequence for CPTPP, and I would just add also RCEP, uh, what would this kind of mean to, uh, for for these regional, you know, trade liberalization to, uh, vehicles? Um, and then the, maybe the last question, just just for you uh, uh, in particular, Dr. Abuzar, is a question from uh, Johanna Sond. She she writes for Reporting ASEAN is a is a publication widely read. Um, she's asking a question. I also wonder over time. How come President Duterte remains persistently popular in the Philippines? Uh, before, before COVID, during COVID that we've seen, his popularity rating has held up, even though his measures are very draconian, very autocratic, and somewhat violent. So I'll just leave that just for you um, towards the end, but maybe we can talk a little bit about Northeast Asia vis-a-vis -vis US and EU uh, with this prompt Southeast Asian countries uh, to maybe tilt towards uh, Northeast Asia more and maybe lose some hope in the US-EU. And then um, CPTPP and RCEP, I think Thailand wants to enter uh, CPTPP. I think that's, uh, that's pretty well known. But I think the, a lot of the economies are coming to grips with the COVID-19 and we haven't seen a lot of news, a lot of uh, movement on these regional trade liberalization. Um, RCEP, uh, of course, uh, is managed by the, the ASEAN-led uh, framework, and uh, the ASEAN summit has been postponed. Uh, so the, the whole ASEAN agenda, including RCEP, uh, has been you know, put off. Um, CPTPP, eventually Thailand would want to join, and I think uh, they will have some rethink about uh, opening up uh, CPTPP, but I think for now, the, the consumption of energy and agenda and government uh, minds and policymakers is really with the, uh, the, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, so Dr. Abuza, Northeast Asia, US, EU, and then um, question about uh, Duterte's, President Duterte's phenomenal, uh, persistent popularity in the Philippines. Uh, the first question is very hard for me to answer because I don't study that part of the world. Um, uh, again, look, uh, America has right now um, some of the tensest relations with, with our Northeast Asian allies right now. Um, uh, President Trump is very clear that he does not support or or see the benefits accrued from alliances. Um, we are in the middle of trying to renegotiate basing in Korea and have demanded a five-fold increase. Um, that sends a very strong signal to, you know, Southeast Asia and other parts that that whether America is really there for them. Um, committed to regional uh, security or or prosperity, um, I, I 
you know, Northeast Asian states are critically important to Southeast Asia economically, and 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 that that's only going to continue. And as I said before, what we've seen from South Korea and um, Taiwan in terms of their response to COVID nineteen, very agile, nimble states. I, I I do hope that that states, you know, when we we start to get on the other side of this pandemic start to look for lessons learned in what countries have done very well uh, and study the systems and models and what they put in place to do this. Um, in terms of trade liber liberalization, you know, it's really hard to see, you know, as, as we're kind of looking at a global recession, the any politician uh, supporting trade liber liberalization, you know, with, with skyrocketing uh, unemployment. Um, and yet, I, I don't see us going back and, and reversing the global supply chains that we have. Um, you know, now is probably the time that we actually need to improve uh, trade liber liberalization and 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 get in place better agreements that more reflect the 21st century economy that that exists. You know, you know, for years we were using trade agreements uh, that that did not take into account large swaths of the modern economy, uh, whether it was cyber or or. Um, you know, intellectual property. Um, so now is actually a, a really important time to have those negotiations to increase trade liberalization and, and to um, improve on uh, the international regimes and norms. And yet it, at the same time, it's hard to see politicians um, uh, respond uh, to that. Um, and it will largely uh, be a function of the political uh, situations and election timetables in many of those countries. And the last point I want to make about that is, you know, the leader of the TPP uh, or the, the new uh, TPP uh, has been Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. And, uh, you know, he has worked assiduously to keep that agreement alive in, in the past few years, so, along with, with many other political leaders from Canada, Australia, and Southeast Asia. But Japan has really been the leader of this. And, you know, Japan has, uh, looks like they're about to go through their second uh, wave of COVID-19 uh, uh, cases. Um, some of the policies in Japan have looked very uneven. Um, obviously, it was a huge blow for Japan to have to postpone the Olympics. So, uh, and we also really don't know whether how, how much longer Abe is going to to be in in place. So, I, I just have trouble imagining the the further uh, expansion of the the TPP and and growth certainly until. Uh, not, 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 not this year. The question on Bre President Duterte's high opinion rating astounds me. I, I, I cannot give you an, an answer. And, you know, 
the Philippines has some of the best public opinion polling in all of Southeast Asia. You know, the Social Weather Station and Pulse Asia are, are very, very professional organizations, uh, some of the best methodology. And they have just shown consistently high support uh, for uh, President Duterte, um, with a few exceptions. Um, the Philippine public broadly mistrusts China. Um, they are very supportive of the United States, uh, which is in complete contradiction of, of President Duterte's stated policies. Uh, the public has uh, questioned uh, Duterte's uh, war on drugs, which has led to the extrajudicial killings of tens of thousands of people, including innocent people, and, and even those, you know, the, the fact is there's been no due process. Who knows who's innocent and who's guilty? Um, and yet the, the public has broadly supported the ends, even if they question the means. Um, we shall see what happens uh, uh, with this. Um, you know, Duterte has benefited from the fact that the economy of the Philippines has been growing fairly robustly in the past few years. Um, but uh, public opinion could turn on him if this leads to a major recession. Um, I think the Philippines is going to be very hard hit by this crisis. Their, their health care system is overwhelmed. It is under-resourced. Um, they are uh, not doing uh, anywhere near the amount of testing they need to do. They cannot control their populations. Um, we're seeing large uh, uh, sectors of the economy uh, being shut down and people, uh, you know, some of the highest poverty rates in Southeast Asia, people who really cannot afford uh, uh, to continue to quarantine. And on top of that, the one thing that's so critical to the Philippine economy is remittances from overseas foreign workers. And, you know, that's worth more um, than the amount of money that gets invested in the Philippines, you know, by foreign investors each year. And so if you have a global recession and, you know, so many of those overseas foreign workers are sent home to the Philippines and lose their jobs, that's going to be a major hit to the Philippine economy. And, and that's when, you know, we might see his otherwise consistently and I would say inexplicably high poll ratings uh, take come come back to earth. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I just add a little, a little bit, uh, if I may, on the, um, you know, this is an intersection between uh, COVID-19 and, and regional trade liberalization. You mentioned the role of Prime Minister Abe, uh, the le leadership from Japan, uh, particularly from uh, Prime Minister Abe. Uh, if uh, this COVID crisis um, is uh, more challenging in Japan, and, you know, they've had a lot of issues, uh, uh, and uh, the Abe administration, I think, is uh, hard-pressed on the back foot, uh, handling, grappling with the, the COVID-19 crisis. And, you know, Japan has been uh, uh, playing a leading role in both the CPTPP uh, without the U.S. and then the, the RCEP. I mean, RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, this is something that uh, 
uh, ASEAN is uh, looking after, but you know Japan is really the the in charge, uh, playing a leading role. And Japan is waiting for India to rejoin and to, to and then to finalize because India has uh, has backed out, has pulled out. Um, so in both cases, CPTPP and RCEP, Japan's role has been pivotal and instrumental. And if the um, domestic politics uh, from this uh, public health crisis turns uh, the other way, it goes against uh, the Abe administration, that would be a big question mark about Japan's role in regional trade liberalization. Um, let, let us take, I know it's coming up to uh, midnight your time, Dr. Abuzar, just a last quick question from uh, Chris uh, Seal. Chris Seal is the principal of uh, uh, Shoresby International School in, in Bangkok, uh, and he's wondering, what uh, what we think um, about the role of schools in all of this? You know, we both uh, uh, we both teach uh, Dr. Abuzar. Um, are we seeing implications for uh, broader creative curriculum and and ways of learning? I mean, online teaching and so on. I, I think that uh, this has been revealing uh, a big revelation about how teaching and learning can be done in different ways. I don't know to what extent you have uh, been doing online teaching and uh, learning over there uh, in your space, but uh, for us here in, in, in Bangkok and in Thailand, um, it's been uh, phenomenal. It's been just uh, epiphany in a way because, you know, we can actually do a lot of things. Uh, doesn't have to be in person, but there are limitations to it. So I think um, to me, I worry about two things. First, it's not evenly distributed. It's not evenly accessible. A lot of uh, school children, a lot of uh, students in Thailand, they would they would need uh, internet access. They would need uh, laptops and uh, you know at a minimum smartphones and to be able to access this kind of online learning teaching. Uh, it's not. Uh, it should not be taken for granted uh, that it can happen. It can take place. It has to be uh, fairly distributed, uh, fairly accessible. Uh, nationwide, really. And then um, the other uh, issue is the, the limitations of the online. On, on the one hand, online has huge potential. It's been great. You know, uh, you can you can stay at home. Uh, you can save yourself to, you know, you can gain two, three hours a day by not having to commute. Uh, and then the online teaching, it takes a bit of uh, getting used to, but after a, a couple of weeks, I think teachers and students both become more accustomed uh, to uh, online learning teaching, and thanks to the the great um, uh, applications uh, from the Zoom to the Microsoft Team, even like you know what we're doing now, the Facebook and Line and all various social media, it can be done. Uh, but I think uh, up to a point. Uh, so what I would see, what I would like to see, uh, is some kind of a a mix. You know, maybe out of five days, five working days, maybe we don't have to go to the office and the schools all five days. Maybe we can go four days, three days, and we can stagger uh, different uh, professions, different offices, and then uh, this way we can have not just a better work-life balance, but also um, lighter traffic, better quality of life, and you know, a broader balance uh, in general. Uh, what, what would be your take from your, from your side of the world, uh, Dr. Abuza, and it, I'll, I'll let this be the last word. Um, yeah, I agree with everything you said about that. Um, I, I think that what's happened now is simply accelerating something that was already happening uh, in in education. Uh, obviously, that this is uh, different. Uh, we, we've had online learning for for 
college and graduate schools for a while, this is obviously new, especially for parents with with elementary young school age children or middle school children. Um, I, I think in the future, look, you and I are, are digital uh, 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 migrants. You know, we, we did not grow up with smartphones and, and I'm older than you, I guess, but um, uh, but, you know, my kids who are college age are, are just so wired. I, I, I think that they're rolling into this uh, uh, fairly easily. It's, it has not been so disruptive to them. The big issue that I think you raise is that um, you have the digital divide. Uh, that there are still too many people who do not have internet access, who do not have computers. And, and that, you know, we cannot continue this until that is addressed. And, and whether it's um, school systems trying to contract and create very cheap tablet computers that can be cheaply uh, produced and distributed, you know, rather than textbooks, um, that's something that we're going to need as societies to think about. The other thing, and I certainly see it in America, you know, because all of our internet is, is you know, from private companies, and you see huge disparities, uh, especially between cities. And, you know, I'm out in a, a very sparsely populated region right now with very poor quality internet. And so again, we've got to do, deal with that digital divide that between urban and rural uh, parts of the country. We're going to have to start to think about uh, treating the internet as a public utility. Um, those are the big issues. In terms of teaching, though, um, yeah, I, I, it's been an adjustment for me teaching. Um, uh, I, I'm. It's getting easier each week, but but still you you miss that contact with the students. But I, I will say that I've actually had, um, in some ways, I think it's helped advising. Um, I can, it's easier to schedule uh, 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 meetings with students to work on their theses online because you can always find a time that works. Um, so in, in some ways that out of the classroom experience has has been really really uh, uh, strong with this, um, but 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 it is a, a new reality. And you know, as we look at universities around the world, kind of cut back the number of tenured positions and increase the number of adjuncts. Um, I, I I think you could see people ha holding multiple positions in the in in higher education at different schools teaching online courses. Um, I certainly am going to go forward with all the courses I develop here on in, thinking about how do I make this more digital friendly in the case that this happens again. Thank you very much for that. I, I think that uh, this COVID-19 period and with the lockdown and the quarantine, isolation, I think it has opened new frontiers to the, the, the teaching environment. Uh, if we are creative and we, we think of new ways, uh, 
uh, they could complement these new frontiers with the, the existing conventional ways of uh, learning and teaching. So it actually can be a big, uh, a big benefit uh, you know, going forward. Um, it's just now past midnight there uh, in your part of the world, in your neck of the woods. Uh, Dr. Wuza, I want to thank you very much. I also want to apologize to our viewers again that uh, uh, because of sudden change in scheduling, uh, Dr. Panitan Watanayagwan was not able to join us, but we'll aim to have him later later on uh, in the weeks coming. Um, and uh, I want to say also next event we have is next Thursday. We'll be looking at the Thai economy, uh, counting the costs, looking for recovery, uh, Thailand's economy after the, the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Dr. Abuza, thank you so much for spending this time with us and sharing your expertise and time uh, from halfway around the world. Uh, have a good night uh, and thank you to our viewers until until next time. Thank you very much. Swadika. So